I'm Adam Lippi, and though this may seem like a normal podcast for RegrettableSincerity.com, it's actually unique for a few reasons. First, because the interview with I Am Comic director and comedian Jordan Brady went on for three hours, I've decided to break it up into two parts. Second, because I'm aware that not many people will have seen Jordan's films, namely Dill Scallion, American Girl, The Third Wheel, and Waking Up in Reno, I've taken screenshots and added text to explain the references. The images will appear below the podcast intro on the site. So if you don't know what either of us are talking about, refer to the images and you'll understand that much better. Now Jordan was primarily interested in promoting his documentary, I Am Comic, now airing on Showtime, but we discussed his early films, other podcasts and some of his favorites, the influence of Comedy Central, and how Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were somewhat responsible for ripping the heart out of the third wheel. Has your entire career led up to the image of Charlize Theron eating a sausage while making a dick joke? <laughs> that was uh, that was more the linchpin of my career. Oh. It, uh, that's an older film, but uh, yes, I would say that was, a, that was a real pivotal moment for me. And I have that still frame actually framed in my office to inspire me every day. Did you send it to her after she won her Oscar? No, I, I didn't have another picture of her peeing on a EPT test. I cut out of the movie and I sent that to her because I thought it was more, more humbling. More humbling than the way she put on weight and all that other stuff for Monster. Oh, I got the reference. Right. Were you a deep... See, that film is cursed, by, that film is cursed, by the way, Adam. Oh, uh, you mean because Patrick Swayze died and Ryan Richardson died? Natasha Richardson died? Yeah, and then just recently the, the uh, legendary cinematographer of that movie... We don't know why the hell he did that movie. If uh, he must not have read the script, he did Rosemary's Baby and Bullet. And, uh, oh, is that Fraker? William. Fra- yeah, William Fraker. Yeah. So uh, I think the movie's cursed. Some people blame it on Billy Bob. But it is eight years old at this point, if not older. I guess you shot it ten years ago or so. You know, it's like saying Rosemary's Baby is cursed because Ruth Gordon is dead. <laughs> well, it could be. You know, with the older people, it takes a little while for the curse to set in. Right, and, and, and it's cursed because Roman Polanski's a rapist, or Mia Farrow's boyfriend slept with her daughter, slept with, you know, with daughter, whatever. I mean, you can make that case the further you go along. Did you know that yeah, everyone you know. in The Wizard of Oz is dead? Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> You're funny. Were, were you a D-plus student in school? No, I was actually a till recreational drug use took over in uh, like my sophomore year of high school. I was a straight A student. So you never had to add a plus to a D or anything like that? No. Oh my gosh, you're referencing a different film. Yes, I, I'm going to jump around and huh. you're never going to know when. Adam, that's, I'm, now I'm flattered because <laughs> you referenced Bill Scallion and Billy Burke. Oh, you should know that I watched all, all four of your films in a row. Wow. Well, Brad Renfro's dead. He worked with Billy Bob in, uh, I don't even know the connection. Uh, in the in the Informers. Yes. Uh, no, I never had to change a, a D to a D plus, but I did change a B minus to a B plus, and that's where the, the joke came from. And uh, you want serious answers, or you? Yeah, I mean, what were your actual decisions on the set? But then, or, or you know, in the editing room, or whatever. And then also, if you if you have jokes, if they're not funny, I'll cut them out. <laughs> I love it. That seems fair to me. I mean, you know, I'm assuming that was the third wheel, right? You know, 
you you oh you, you you know that you cut out the jokes that weren't funny, and so there weren't any jokes left. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, the third the third wheel suffered. Actually, there's a couple little funny moments, but uh, no, there are. But I'll talk about that when I get to it. But um, I guess I wanted to ask: Was Dill Scallion how you started directing? Was that because you just had a bunch of friends in the movie and show up? You know, shoot very low budget. Because you know the mockumentary route is seems to be a good way into the business, but like with your oh my God. the mockumentary film is like a narrative shortcut. It's the easiest way to tell a story without having to really know what you're doing with a, a feature film or have production value. I, I, yeah, and and I pitched the story in about 15 seconds to Hollywood Pictures, Country Music Spinal Tap, and they said okay. Who's going to write it? And I said, well, i got tons of friends that are writers. And they said, no, you write it. And that was the meeting. It was literally, I just told you the story in real time. So I wrote a, a loose script that was probably, you know, like 88 pages and cast it with my friends and then had a search for the lead guy, put a band together. And the trick was to go around the country and book the band. So and uh, Hollywood Pictures gave you $75 plus tip. No, so Hollywood Pictures had the executive shuffle and I bought the movie back. Uh, the greatest expense in the whole thing was paying for my own script. And then, uh, yeah, the mockumentary allows you to get production value. You can shoot the exterior shots on the road. We had a bus and a crew and, and a band. And then once we got back to LA, we just hung a banner somewhere. Country Fest, and there's the banner. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you, you can shoot interiors in your backyard. How did you even get to that meeting with Hollywood Pictures where you wanted to direct, considering that was... I mean, I, I saw on your, your IMDb list that you had made, you know, Name Your Adventure, and I remember that show when I was a kid, or I guess I was a teenager or something, but but that was not like a non-fiction... That, that was non-fiction, technically, right? Technically non-fiction. It was manipulated reality, Right. Name Your Adventure. Name Your Adventure is, is, was basically... It was like Mario Lopez... And I co-hosted some, and I directed my my segments and a lot of Mario's segments. It was like Make-A-Wish for Healthy Kids. No, I remember it vaguely, yeah. and I can remember Mario Lopez. So, but how did you get to that point where you could pitch a, a fiction film to a studio? I was a stand-up comedian, and that's what got me to Name Your Adventure, and I did some MTV stuff. And I had been directing shorts for Comedy Central and MTV even before Name Your Adventure, which most people call Name That Adventure, which would have been a better title, Name That Adventure. So I had uh, some managers involved in my career as a stand-up, and I said, hey, I think this will be a funny movie. And they said, okay, we're going to take you over to Hollywood Pictures. They would buy this movie, which is a weird way for a woman to talk, but that's exactly how she sounded. It was actually a guy named Larry Bresner who had Robin Williams and uh, maybe still does. You mean Larry Bresner's a woman who talks like that? Wow. That's, yeah. That's a leap of faith I'm not really willing to make. Um, now, what would have been your adventure, Adam? Um, this phone call. I think that's sarcasm right there. How can you tell? Well, the jig is up, my friend. We're on to the sarcasm. Oh, I know. Everyone is on to the sarcasm. But uh, sometimes, you know, you can't. It, it's just a matter of inflection. But, you, you know, the smarter the person is, the more likely they catch on. The fun is when... They're not catching on, and you can sure say, when they don't catch on. That's that's Borat, right? But then you, you can say absolutely ridiculous things like Borat does. I'm surprised he got away with that twice with Bruno. I would think everybody would have like how stupid are people? Well, but remember, you Bruno is a twice. very small part of 
the American version of the show. He was only like in small bits here and there, and right. not necessarily in those situations. Like, y- yes, the funniest one is the one where he goes to the gun show, and you you fear for Sasha Baron Cohen's life that he's going to get shot by this guy that he wants to stop flirting with. I, I think he wasn't nearly as known that character, and this doesn't look anything like Borat anyway. And it's such a cartoon. I guess I had watched Ali G enough to know the character, and I mean, also I just think people would know it was a put on. To bring it back to uh, to me, I think Bill Scallion was very similar in that it was less mockumentary and a little more docu-mockery in that some of, you know a, a percentage of the movie was really think, people thinking that he was a country singer. And it's not played for the mean style of laughs, which I certainly enjoy, but the, the format was the same. I mean, clearly Borat did a little, little bit stronger. Well, I was going to ask if there was like the Mario Lopez connection, because your lead actor looks exactly like Patrick Muldoon from Saved by the Bell. You know, I don't know what the connection there, other than I would love to work with Screech. Well, He's maybe he, shoot, he could shoot another porn film. You might, you know. You could be a gaffer, or yeah, I have. Is it good? No, No, of course not. (laughs) And it's very staged too. It's quite clearly staged. Um, What about the room? Have you seen the room? I have seen the room, and uh, outside of LA, I'm sure it plays very differently, though, because of the cult following there. I've only seen it at home, and my girlfriend and I laughed throughout it. Although, you know, you have to get through the first ten minutes of softcore sex scenes, which are kind of hard to sit through. But after that, the, the everything is so off. And since I'm a, I've always been a big Troll 2 fan. In fact, you can read something on my website yeah. about Troll 2. That was, that was written like well before there was this big following and documentary. That is a movie that also could not be pre-planned in the sense that there is no moment that seems to exist in, the, in a human universe. Like, like watching the movie Clifford is the same way. Yeah. And uh, well, hopefully Marmaduke will be like that. It's already gone. Well, the, 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 the astonishing thing to me with... Uh, Marmaduke is that Owen Wilson chose or his agents advised that he goes for the credit. Owen Wilson is Marmaduke. They just said, you know what? You're going to make a lot of money. You're going to be the voice of a classic comic strip. Mm-hmm. Own it, buddy. You are my sir. I mean, I didn't know Owen was so method. Well, I mean, I think he probably, you know, spent a long time in a kennel training for it. Or he actually wearing the cone so he couldn't lick his own genitalia. Yeah, I think that's, that was the way to go. Um, I know that I'm hoping that you get another uh, major Hollywood gig so I can see another sequence of CGI dogs dancing to <laughs> some late 80s, early 90s rap hit, considering your affinity for musical kitsch. I love musical kitsch, and I love talking animals. And I'm actually working on some software called iSpeak, and it, it allows the consumer to videotape their own dog, just drop in the clip, and then the software helps you animate to your favorite songs. And Is that how Roger know, Ebert is using his machine to talk now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, about Scallion. Now, I, I don't know what version I was watching, but it seemed to come with a PG-13 rating, which seemed... You're not worried about a rating on a movie like that. It's so small and low budget. Why? Why did they ask you? Did they ask you to cut it down or something? You know, I don't. I don't have an answer. I don't. I thought it was rated G. For, there's not. A, there's not a swear word in the gosh darn thing. In, in Dill Scallion. Yeah. No. There's a, someone says fuck and there's a blowjob joke in there. There's a there's a visual blowjob insinuation 
No one says fuck. No, there's just one time. I think it's Kathy Griffin. Or maybe Henry Winkler. I can't remember, but it does happen once. Uh, maybe maybe Henry Winkler says it. Um, yeah, that I was, don't know. Was that a conscious it's decision? Pretty, it's pretty harmless. Yeah, pretty harmless it. movie. There ain't no guns. There ain't no uh, real boozing. Mm-hmm. I think there might be implied drug use, but no, not even that. Well, I mean, maybe, you know, implied drug use, are we talking like swallowing whole, whole bottles of Flintstones vitamins or something? Because that's not a good idea. <laughs> that's a joke only for you, because no one will know what I'm talking about. No one will know, except Wayne Fetterman will know. You know what I wrote Wayne down? Wayne Fetterman. You know what I wrote Wayne down? Fetterman. I wrote down Wayne, that's my first question about the third wheel is, Wayne Fetterman. It actually says Wayne Fetterman, because Roger Nygaard uses Wayne Fetterman all the time. Yeah. Wayne Fetterman plays himself. I've put Wayne Fetterman and David Koechner in uh, every movie. Mm-hmm. And you still don't know who Wayne Fetterman is, but he's a funny individual. I don't know who Wayne Fetterman is. Of course I do. Oh, you do, but I mean, what? Uh, one, the the, well, he just had half, grander, He just did half of uh, a Kevin Pollack episode, so maybe that will help. Oh, good. Probably the worst one they've done well really i mean i don't know how to gauge those i was going to ask you what were your favorite podcasts i like that not for kevin pollack who just won't stop doing shtick and making faces and and i'm like god you know let the people talk you know stop asking fawning questions stop stop being james lipton but i i do like that the the long format but what what are your podcasts because i listen to a lot of them and they almost all mention i am comic that were comedy related what are the ones that you either like or wish you'd get referenced on? I listen and like uh, what the fuck the most. I agree, actually, completely. Because, you know, Mark Marin and I were in the same coming up class. I mean, he was at the comedy store. I did the improvisation. He was dark and bitter. I was bubbly and, and uh, silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and never really crossed paths, although the common denominator is after Jon Stewart left, we both hosted a show on Comedy Central called... Short Attention Span Theater? Is that you? Short Attention Span Theater. Wow, man, you are like, don't play uh, Jeopardy or Scrabble with you. Well, you know, I grew up on Comedy Central, so I'm going to know all of those references. When when well, yeah, uh, when Daniel like, Tosh makes those jokes during Tosh.0 about, like, we'll be right back with more, and then he makes a reference to a previously canceled Comedy Central show, I constantly have to explain it to whomever I'm in the room with. <laughs> no, The Vacant Lot was a show about... It was a third-rate Kids in the Hall. Don't worry. Right. Vacant Lot was wanted to be Kids in the Hall more than Kids in the Hall wanted to be Monty Python. Right. With a little Mr. Show sprinkled. Right. So, but there, everything influences. I, I saw some comedians in Chicago at Just for Last last week. Mm-hmm. And now there's this whole Aziz sort of stream of comedian coming out where they bounce around a little bit. And do oh, a but that's a character he's doing. He, the prom, here was the problem with his last special is that he the, the Randy character is so good that he do, he stopped his own show, ended his own show 45 minutes into the hour that they gave it. And then the last 10 minutes was just a Randy bit. Right. And it's better than any of the material in his regular show. Now, is that a compliment to him, or or is it... Because Randy was supposed to be a spoof, right, of like a... Oh, yeah, of a Dane Cook thing, like yeah, I, yeah. Um, and but now I'm saying there are guys that are doing that. Guys, I mean, I forget the youngster's name, but he was very funny and very mm-hmm. likable, but the bouncing around was like, oh, you're 
he, he wasn't goofing on it. He was just really that animated. Oh. It seems to be the school of the school of Randy, if you will. Anyway, I digress. No, no, no. I mean, it, 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 I, I wouldn't, you know, eventually all the things that we're making fun of, people will take seriously. Yeah. Well, you, you, asked, me, you asked me a question. About podcasts. Oh, Mark Marin, what the fuck? Mark mm-hmm. Marin, what the fuck? I'll tell you why. Because Mark was, you know, he was an angry guy, and he always had this attitude, and this is off stage and everything. And then I, and then I partied with him one time, and Aspen used to have a comedy festival. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember it. I think it was like... Mm-hmm. Mark and Margaret Cho and myself were hanging out and we're partying a little bit and, and he just seemed like, okay, he's, he's mellowed a little bit. And that's, you know, 10 plus years ago. This is and then post, I ran into post, a, post uh, rehab? Whatever it would call it? No, pre-rehab. Pre, pre okay. But he was still, still mellowing out a little bit. And then um, I ran into him at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival after I'd been listening to the podcast Mm-hmm. And he sat in the audience, and Dana Gould had throat surgery, so he couldn't fly up, and he was going to do the Q and A. Todd Glass had a freaking heart attack, so he can't do the the Q and A. And I've been friends with these guys for such a long time, and it really pissed me off because, yes, you have your health problems, but what about me and my film? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it was terribly inconsiderate, especially of Todd. I know, that is a bit over the top. I mean, I know he's high energy and everything and conversational, but that really wasn't very nice. Yeah, I mean, at least postpone it or, you know what, you had a heart attack and you're talking about it and, you know, he does an okay podcast, a little sloppy, Mm -hmm. but why don't you suck it up and fly up to Portland? Well, Marion will just make the Q&A about himself and just apologizing for some affront towards you that probably never happened that was just in his head. Well, that, that's what I like is he apologizes, but I don't think he really means it. No, he doesn't. It's totally and, insincere. I, I, I can see that. But on the podcast, he has a way of getting intimate. I'm, I'm being serious here. No, I agree. Way, and I, I honestly, I, I totally agree. And he gets some rather smart people to say even smarter things than you'd expect. And not not just comedy people, like some like really intelligent conversation with writers and journalists that are not expecting and less kiss-ass stuff than, say, you know, Kevin Pollack or, well, less so Scott Ackerman, but you know, just much more confrontational and much more interesting. Uh, Jimmy Dore has a good podcast, by the way. Yeah, I've listened to it. It's a little... I mean, for instance, all right, if Adam Carolla is sort of the Howard Stern equivalent, like someone who maybe makes some good points but does not think about anything before he says it and then often has foot-and-mouth disease... Athlete's tongue, we call that. Well, then he has got permanent athlete's tongue because he says a lot of very foolish things, but then some funny things too. Then Jimmy Dore is sort of at the opposite end. Everything is a little too cautious. Maybe it's mm-hmm. his. Maybe it's his sense of humor that I don't. You know, I, I listened to a few of those and I didn't really get into it. It was just like listening to um, Fresh Air on on NPR, <laughs> but about comedy. With a different. Uh, what's the word? The pacing. Jimmy Dore. He talks a certain way. I don't know what the inflection is, but uh, he's a funny guy. I, sometimes I think it's in the rhythm of what he's saying rather than what he's actually saying. Right. Kathy Griffin is that way. I don't know. Sometimes I don't even know what she's saying, but it's just she, she kind of rambles on and wraps it up like this. She'll say something, she'll say something, and then she'll say and she'll wrap it up like this really fast. You know what being rich is like, right? Uh, yeah. I know what it's like to be uh, 
affluent, but not for any long stretch of time. No, it was a, it was a Dill Scallion reference. It was my favorite. Oh, sure, jo- sure. It was my favorite joke in the sure, movie. Henry Winkler said, "No, I was with you. I was with yeah. you there, buddy. I was right there." Uh, but I know what it's like, and it, it tastes good. And sometimes it's better to taste affluent and spit it out than to rather swallow it and really enjoy it and digest it. Because that's how you get gingivitis, and you don't want to get you know those gingivitis foundations. Now that gingivitis riff uh-huh. in the movie uh-huh. is from an act that I used to do with Wayne Fetterman. If you really knew your like VH1 comedy spotlight and your even at the improvs, you know that Wayne Fetterman and I were one of the few musical guests on the show. Ah, I, we, I'm, I was actually, at that age, I think I was allergic to A&E, so I didn't watch it. They had people like Leslie Uggams host with no, you know, comedy connection whatsoever. It was just whoever was pimping something at the time mm-hmm. got, to, got to host four comedians. And then uh, by the time it aired, whatever they were pimping was long gone. Oh, it's like watching the Byron Allen show. Now, how does Byron Allen keep inventing the same show over and over again and selling it? I mean, what, what, what would be the show? Let's ask disingenuous questions to actors who are sleeping through the interview, and let's cut back to me as if I was amused, and let's cut back to them as if they were amused, even though they obviously shot this much earlier. And let's have five separate stories from five separate comedians that don't listen to one another, and uh, I'll, set, I'll set them up with a non-sequitur, and they'll launch into their bit, no matter what I say. You know, maybe we could replace him with, like, Wally Collins, like he may need some work. Would anybody notice? Wow. I think I last saw him on some Trident commercial or something. Or he was he was at Soup Plantation with uh, Mario Joyner. Were they trying out for the most forgettable black guy or something? Or... <laughs> I mean, it was unfortunate that they both had the same job because they were almost interchangeable. If you remember that they had that, that show, Stand Up, Stand Up, on Comedy Central. Yeah, oh, yeah. They do these awful blackout jokes. I don't mean, like, race jokes. I mean, like... Like it would, it's almost like a blackout sketch with no money. You know, cutting to the comedy, it would just—I guess it made everything funnier. Like all the hack, hack uh, comics standing in front of brick walls, look like geniuses next to whatever Wally Collins or Jordan are doing. Are you saying they consciously took one for the team? Yeah, I kind of. They, I mean, there's there's no lower the bar to yeah. help the comedian. There's no explanation. I mean, why? You know, how else are you going to make Suzanne Westenhofer funny, if not? to really lower the bar. You know what's odd is the brick wall gets all the, the glory mm-hmm. for those shows back in the in the heyday of when the comedy... Well, it could be the started. Caroline's background from 1990, but, you know, that's the one that they showed ad nauseum, so who knows? But they didn't really have that many. Like, VH1 had one that Rosie O'Donnell hosted. Mm-hmm. This was a, a thinner, straighter Rosie O'Donnell. Right. And, and it had, uh, like, Christmas tree lights behind it. Mm-hmm. The improv show, even the improv had a brick wall. But I can't think of the other, like Fox had weird sets, MTV would have, you know, just a, an odd... Well, the brick wall, I think that that cliche came from how much they would show on those, those sort of stand-up clip shows. Because they would be recorded at all sorts of different places. And right. and a lot of those clips were either at Caroline's or they were, you know, in front of brick walls somewhere else. Whether it was Tim Allen from like 1987 doing something or whatever. Eventually, some clubs put up a fake brick wall just to make it feel, even though it was in a strip mall above a subway, they would still bring in a phony brick wall, as if that made it feel... I, like I, I hope I hope Dimitri Martin's thing. new special, he has a brick wall, and then it's a sign that says brick wall. Oh, that's funny. 
Yeah, if you say that's funny, it's probably not funny. No, I mean that's funny because that's that's his shtick, isn't it? Yes, that is his shtick. That was why you know this is a thing. Yes. Now the kids say meta when they reference them, themselves. Is that right? What is, explain what that means. Meta. And in fact, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about meta because there's a lot of meta in the third wheel. But meta would just be when something acknowledge. It's a fourth wall acknowledgement, and uh, yeah. uh, not just fourth wall, but but um, a commenting on the notion of the fourth wall. The fourth wall would have been a better title than third wheel. Yes, that's true. In the third wheel. Now you have to understand. I'm a guy who does a reality show. I'm a comedian that hosted a game show. Oh, I'm not blaming I'm, you for the third wheel. Like it, it no, smells no, 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 like studio no, tinkering to me. So I, you know, I can see that. Well, no, it, its heart was ripped out. But right. I tried to make it even go more meta, mm-hmm. meaning the script was written by a guy I happen to know, mm-hmm. and Ben Affleck was going to be in it. Then he wins the Academy Award, mm-hmm. so the movie's put on hold. Right. And as a guy who's still editing Dill Scallion, mm-hmm. you know, and learning the reading the manual for the Abbott while trying to edit a mockumentary and break into, you know, features mm-hmm. off of a reality show. So the leap right there is crazy. These guys say, Do you want to direct this movie? You'd be great for it. We've got like a million one dollars. So I jump at the chance and try to be somewhat self reverential, you know, just that it was a romantic comedy. Trying to turn the movie on its head. Is that why you, I, you? Is that was that the whole thing with Denise Richards? You just made sure that in every scene she's laughing about something, and we don't know what it is. Yeah, but you know why? Because there were no there was no dialogue for it. Oh yeah, I figured so, as much. Or then then it's like okay, you can't laugh the whole movie. How about pick your teeth? How about snort in a funny way? Like just kind of spoof the girl. In the movie that has no dialogue and is pretty and laughs. Yeah, but the problem you have is that the movie is so spare that it looks like that's all there was, then it's not a parody. Right. No, I did. Luke Wilson asked her out, Denise Richards out. She says yes. Mm-hmm. So I have him floating up through the office as he's leaving to go on the date. Right. Right? And that, it was your, that Spike, it was your Spike Lee shot is what it looked like. It's, it, it's like a poor man, Spike Lee. And Spike Lee had no money, so I don't know what that makes mine. But it's your Spike Lee shot where you're pulling Wesley Snipes with his jungle fever down the street, and he acts like he's walking. Right. So I have Luke there. By the way, the DP was my brother-in-law, who later ripped off the shot for Big Fat Liar when little Frankie Nunez, or Munez, gets an idea in the, in the theater. He called because I'm doing the same, the same Spike Lee bit. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Luke Wilson floats because he's metaphorically high on life and he's rising up. My thing was, I had him hit the ceiling and little chips of particle boards fell off, you know, because it was like an office drop ceiling thing. Right. And, and that's where, when Merrimax bought the movie, uh, most likely to placate, you know, their wonder twins of the day, Matt and Ben. Because basically the third wheel is Project Stoplight. It showed them how bad movies could be if they produced. That was a choice I made to try and do another film and import any comedy. You know, I am probably was more influenced by Mel Brooks than anybody else in that film, trying to do these funny things. And then the studio buys it, and you're all happy. But then it's just chop, chop, chop. And if you take out the herbs and spices, you're left with on the surface looks just like another bad movie. Right. I mean, I'm going to get to it later, but I have a question about how much... The writer insisted upon ruining his own movie, but 
Well, first of all, he, he, he wrote it for himself, and I say, God bless you. But, I mean, a little bit of him goes a long way. That's a Harvey Weinstein quote. Little bit, of, little bit of Phil goes a long way. It was actually um, Liev Schreiber, Schreiber with a V, who narrates. Uh, he narrates something these days. It's, he narrates they, boxing for HBO. Oh yeah, there's, there's this little documentary. They yeah. they show leading up to the fight. Yeah, the the legend really adds a lot of drama. Yeah, and you've seen the the amazing uh, series they put together about five or six years ago called Legendary Nights. He, he narrates those too, and those are really well produced. I had a conversation with him about being in the third wheel. Believe it or not, where is he in the third know, wheel? Is he in the party scenes or something? No, he's not in. <laughs> there, that is sprinkled with uh, a couple of friends, though. Well, no, I know was, I recognize some people in there, but the party scenes were like a year later. Merrimack said, you know what really worked for us was uh, 10 ways to lose your lover. And uh, why don't you write some scenes and have Jay write them and then it's like we can intercut the party with the date. So it was just, I mean, literally a year later. Well, how, you look at how does that work in terms people. of, you know, you have these people show up in scenes, though, not just at the party. They, you know, Ben Affleck's following them around and then the O-Face guys following him around. Um, oh, the, yeah, the guy from uh, Office Space? Yeah. Yeah, you know what's, what's funny about that is between the Bill Scallion promos and now I do a lot, I've done like 700 commercials. In fact, I just saw one on, during the World Cup that I'm very proud of. So I did one for um, a national food chain whose symbol is a golden arch. Whatever, they were for Shrek 3 glasses that you get at McDonald's. And then a week after it started airing, they found a lead poisoning in the paint that they used to paint the glasses. So the commercial got pulled. But uh, well, the kids shouldn't eat the glasses then. I mean, that's your problem. Yeah, but you, you know, you feel bad enough when you you take a job pushing the processed chicken. Right now you're now you're pushing the lead poisoning on the kitty. But Liam Shriver pointed out in the script of the Third Wheel. Clearly, the writer wrote it for himself because he's trying to make himself the hero. So why would I want to play opposite of that when I'm basically adult? You know, my character's adult. So you know, yeah, Luke Wilson's character doesn't make a lot of sense in that movie. But I, and I, I was just like, this there has to be so much ripped out of here because it just I have no, you know, I don't know why the constant changes, why he would go confront him about the glass menagerie. Why the con man would then say that and expect Luke Wilson to confront him about it? That's the part I really right. didn't get at all. It was, and, and to ask the writer to explain it, which, you know, maybe the movie should have been subtitled. Or like an old silent movie had a little explanation come up on, on black cards with white text. Mm-hmm. I actually floated out the idea that, well, what if we show that it's a fake glass menagerie from the beginning? Then at least we get that the guy's just trying to help him. Right. Which still doesn't really make sense. But, you know, that was like a whole, that was a whole thing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much in that that doesn't, I don't understand the fight at the end. I don't understand what kind of con it is to get hit by stuff and then ask for money and then what? Hasn't hasn't he heard of all the, the people who get, you know, hit in cars, hit by cars like the, you know, the movie, the movie Stuck is based on that, the... The, the woman who hit a guy and then just, like, kept driving. That seems like a very stupid scam. That I don't... I didn't even quite understand what the scam was. 
And I know, I guess you added that tag at the end of the liquor store, right? The, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's my day off or something. Right. That he was just to make it. Because you're you're absolutely right that it's a it's a thinly veiled concept to write a movie for yourself to get your buddy to be in. Right. It's just really weird because you know I didn't grow up nurtured in the showbiz environment. And and I remember a very gracious Kevin Smith saying to me, Merrimack, they won't let you have your, your DP that you shot two movies with, even though they just bought your movie shot by that DP. They'll, they'll want you to meet someone else. And, and they did. Just It's just a weird mind game, but I, I mean, I understand it now. But uh, It's the notes game. It's like, you know, these guys have to justify their job, and the only way to do it is to give you all sorts of notes that probably contradict each other, but, you know, they've got to get a paycheck somehow. Well, it, it's just... So Merrimax hires me for the uh, Waking Up in Reno. As he's buying, like, I, my agent says, Harvey Weinstein wants to meet you. And I jokingly say, what, like midnight at the peninsula? And they go, yeah, exactly. Because you hear those stories. So I go in at midnight, and there's a big... It's almost like, you know, if people really knew what that, those meetings are like in those penthouses at the Peninsula Hotel, it's, it's Les Grossman and Bill Heater in uh, Tropic Thunder. The Yes Man and the, you know, just, just the, it's just all over. The, the whole scene is over the top. So, you know, he wanted to see, talk about the third wheel, and I had read uh, Waking Up Reno, but had a specific take on it. Again, which was trying to be a little more tongue-in-cheek. And the end result, you know, I, th- I think the lesson learned is, uh, I mean, I tried to cut a scene that would have cost a few hundred thousand dollars, and the yes-men underneath him were like, it's already been approved. Could you please just shoot it? We don't want any trouble. Cut it later. And, of course, the scene's not in the movie, but to try and change the course of a ship that has sailed uh, is impossible with those kind of people in the, in the way. So anyway, I don't know if this is making sense, but... No, of course it, yeah, uh, it makes sense so to me. But, yeah. I'm prepping, I'm prepping Wake It Up in Reno, and I'm happy to get hired a second time after Dill Scallion, and... Why? Was that, is, I mean, you know, it's probably your funniest film, but... Which one? Dill Scallion. Why wouldn't you get hired after that? No, 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 I'm saying, I've, Dill Scallion's barely finished... Oh, oh, okay. See, that was I was going to ask. I was. I was. By far funnier. I mean, I am comic has probably more solid laughs per minute for the common man because it's just a little more overt, and there's you know funny comedians in it doing their thing. Yeah, but the Dill Scallion has a better song, so there you go. Dill Scallion. By the way, Dill Scallion pays way better with uh, song royalties than any of the other movies. Well, who who Um, buys the songs? No, I wrote the songs, but when they play on television and cable and everything. Oh, okay. All right. A little coin that way. Yeah. So the check is like 75 cents instead of 50, is what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. There's actually You Shared You is in the third wheel. I think I made more money off You Shared You being on the radio for eight seconds in the third wheel than the third wheel. But um, I'm hired by Merrimax to do that waking up in Reno and they're still editing the third wheel when I started the third wheel I was still editing Bill Scallion so I went back to back to back and I'm happy to be working I'm trying to make a career you know in hindsight any of you young filmmakers out there maybe choose the script a little better 
because I knew there were inherent problems with with both those scripts. But you're just so happy to be in the game that you take the, the job. So I actually did the reshoots for the third wheel after completing Waking Up in Reno. So was it taken out of my hands? Yeah, completely. I'm just like, the writer's turning in these scenes and I'm looking at them and I get some sort of approval. But once we shot them, then, you know, it's, it's just like slap-happy editing, plugging in scenes. You know, at least my technical filmmaking prowess had grown because by this point I'd done a bunch of commercials and these movies. So I, like when you say, how does how do these characters follow them around on the date? I put a camera in the middle of the room, put six sets in a circle, and just pan the camera to each one wall set. Oh, what I was the reason I asked that is because if those things were added a year later, but there's some of them were in the same shot, or those parts were not added a year later, that whole subplot. The whole subplot was a year later. Like the Ben Affleck and the motorcycle thing. Yeah, he, yeah he's on a motorcycle on a soundstage. Okay. Rather, there might be one exterior shot that was done half the time but everything else was long lens on a sound stage and just cut in I guess, I guess I didn't notice any of those people in the same shot if I'm thinking about it yeah that, uh, uh, they're in the office some of the some of them are in the office scene and then a year later we reassembled the people I mean they to me there's a, they look noticeably different like Luke, Luke Wilson in a couple of pickup shots Oh, I was going to ask the Luke Wilson hair, whatever that is. Is oh, I, man, I think you ought to. I think you ought to sell that to people. I think Donald Trump could use some. Well, they're talking about using it to clean up the the oil in the Gulf. I think it would work because you know it's absorbent and oil will stick to it. So really, the Luke Wilson hair could actually it could it could have a purpose in life now. Now I'm assuming one was a wig and one, or was it just like nobody even cared and. You just shot it, even if he had different hair length and different style. Yeah, it, it was a, it was he had shaved his head for um, some movie that escapes me. But he had, he, had, he had a crew cut, so we put the bad wig on him. And I didn't throw in the towel at that point. I still tried to monitor quality because I'm the guy that took off the chin strap on the hairpiece. It was clearly visible. Mm-hmm. I said, I can't shoot that. I got to put my foot down. And could, they couldn't use makeup to kind of color it like skin or something? <laughs> it, it, I mean, if it were done in, in 2010, we'd just use an avatar. Right, right. Oh, was Dill Scallion, I know you said you wrote you know your 88-page script, but it runs out of steam about halfway through, and then it just kind of goes through the plot motions, like the, a lot of the Will Ferrell movies do, like... They have very high energy at the beginning, lots of jokes, and then for some reason, despite the movie being a parody, they think we care about the plot points kind of stuff. Like, uh, why would I care about the plot points in Anchorman? Of course I don't. Uh, was it in initially intended as a short film? Or I mean, there's that feel, like like the first chunk of it's very oh, good, and then true. it falls off because like there's just no more inspiration, and then it's just like, let's do the up-and-down story. Oh, that's so hurtful. It was not intended for a short film. Okay. Um, I don't really think you are. You are you serious that that's hurtful? <laughs> no, I'm not serious. <laughs> I was going to say. I mean, there's many, many ways to pick apart that movie, and and that's probably one of the least. Well, now that hurts. <laughs> I'm actually very proud of that movie. Oh, I no, I, I, I genuinely so liked. I liked a lot yeah. of it. Um, I think that uh, a lot of parodies, uh, even Walk Hard, has a hard time sustaining the whole time. 
Right. And, you know, in hindsight, I think those guys like 100 minutes or 99 minutes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe 91 by the time you, you saw them. Mm-hmm. But that, that was kind of a learn as you go. Because your normal running time is 82 minutes. Like, that's the running time for every version, every movie of yours I think I saw. You've, you've you got the mention. Italian? No, that was the one. That wasn't 82 minutes. Oh. Yeah, it, it's, um, and the I Am Comic is 86, if you count the credits. No, I, I'm saying, like, pre-credits, uh, except, I guess, yeah, pre-credits. I was watching it's a PAL okay. DVD of American Girl, so I don't know what the actual length is, but that was pretty close. Yeah, that was an experimental film. That was crazy. That was shot in, like, 19 days. I but it was fun. But uh, the Dill Scallion, yeah, I, it was never intended to be a short film, but, a, a, you know, after I'd been to some festivals and I was learned a little bit more, because I didn't know what I was doing. I read a couple of books on how to write a story and how to craft a story. And then after editing and editing and editing, which I guess I could have said that was just one editing, there's, there's whole scenes that could come out, but they do just serve as plot. Like, we got an opportunity to perform at this real country festival called We Fest. So I just scribbled a scene where it's total exposition of setting up We Fest. When really, a couple years later, you watch and go, well, nobody really cares. And especially, well, no, people watch it now and they'd be confused because you either talk about Nintendo or urine. Exactly. Yeah, a, a gathering of, of uh, we enthusiasts. Right. We that. So, I, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I was just learning it and I'm go and I'm happy to step in shit wherever I can. Now, American Girl seemed... I, I was very lost with the tone of it, and I know you said it was experimental, but obviously the Harold and Maude influence is there, I'm assuming? Sure, sure. I mean... Harold and Maude, what a, what a great classic in dark comedy, gallows humor, as we say. Mm-hmm. The script was a play, and it was the same guy that produced The Third Wheel. And I read the script and saw it a little differently than the, than the playwright turned screenwriter. And kind of took it over and just wanted to play it really gritty and, and wanted to see if you could have this kind of tongue-in-cheek humor mixed in with, you know, darker tones of serious family drama and uh, incest. Hmm. Now, Harold Maude does not have Billy Bob Thornton in it, but that seems to be cursed, too, because if you think about it, Ruth Gordon dead, Hal Ashby dead, but <laughs> Bud Court bald. So there you go. So you're saying if you wait long enough, any movie can have a curse because the actors... Sure, because everyone dies who's involved with it, of course. I mean, think, you know, Hal Ashby was obviously cursed because he only made um, about 12 more films, eight of them nominated for Oscars. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. I don't even know if it's eight, but a number of them. Well, fate, fate is a fickle, a fickle friend. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means either. I'm just uh, do you like Malaprops? Perhaps. Yeah. So I was going to ask about the comedy instead of a drama thing because the the tone of American Girl is like all over the place. Like half the time it plays like a sitcom, and then the other half, you think it's like one of those whiny dramas made around that era that often starred Jenna Malone. And that's all. That's yeah, all the director's fault. That's all my fault. Because I, um, in fact, there was some. I remember somebody came to the set and interviewed me at the time saying like what's going on I said you know I'm just seeing if I can balance the drama with this absurd comedy and clearly it failed 
the crazy thing it was it was originally called Lifer's Picnic. Do you know that? No, but that's a much better title. Well, Lifer's Picnic was about Jenna Malone going to see her daddy in prison. Mm-hmm. So the sitcom-like tone was basically how I approached the prison. Like, it isn't a real gritty prison. The, the, the best thing that came out of that movie for me was discovering Clifton Collins Jr., who I think is a pretty great actor. Um, well, right, I mean, that, that's that. His scenes were the strangest because you're like, he's gonna he's gonna cut Brad Renfro's throat, or he's gonna fuck him, or something. And then, what's the worst? You know, that happens. Uh, he kisses him, and that's it. And he's you know really not bothered by it. In fact, he wanted to kiss him. So it, it just has this weird, oh, everything will be fine tone to it, and I just didn't get it. Yeah, and everything's wrapped up at the end nicely. Yeah. Crazy. And um, what's her name? The the mom, Miska. Uh, Forbes, Michelle Forbes right. from uh, the Star Trek series. In California. I think she's a, she's a good, yeah, California with a K. She's mm-hmm. a good actor, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, that, I mean, it was fun to work with everybody, but going in, like the third wheel, I can tell you, swung for the fence trying to make it a comedy, got its part ripped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lifer's Picnic just went in to have fun. There was, there was there were, to me, there was nothing to lose. It was an under-the-radar independent film. And parts of it make me laugh. Like the birthday song is something my mom used to sing to me when I was little. So I had them sing "Happy Birthday" like that to uh, to Brad Renfro. Did they sing? What about the bus song? Who sang that? That was Jay. That's that's Jay. No one sings the bus song, which is just another crazy. Like, what does that mean, bus song? But with uh, "Lifer's Picnic," it's supposed to be this ensemble piece, right? Mm-hmm. And all the actors are just jazzed, and there's a, I think the writer said the actor strike was threatening to shut down Tinseltown, and we're having fun. Like I said, it's like 18, 19 days. And then the producer uh, comes to set, and he's like the Israeli wannabe Harvey. Mm-hmm. Because we, and he showed, we, we made the trades today. We're in the reporter. Eli Samaha? It's not Eli Samaha. I hope it's Eli Samaha. No, it's not. Okay, because he always makes a good story. But, or, you know, uh, Avi Lerner? Not Avi Lerner? Yeah. It's Avi no. Lerner? Really? No, I don't know who it is. Oh. <laughs> no, the Israeli producer. No, I know, I know yeah. what you're asking. Yeah. No, uh, I don't even think he's in the business anymore. I think okay. he sells, like, replica aviator watches or something now. But he goes, um, we're in the trades. We're in the trades. And it's a picture of Jenna Malone, and it says, American Girl. And everybody just looks at him like, well, I thought it was called Lifer's Picnic. I thought it was an ensemble. And there's the whole mood deflated. And I think Alicia, Alicia Witt wanted to quit. And, you know, Brad Renfro went and did drugs. And it was just... Is that why Alicia Witt has that moment where she's like, she, she, she delivers, you know... Big speech? Her, her line is so unconvincing. I most definitely will not. I don't even understand the squeal scene at all, but yeah. I think you know that's uh, that's someone's way of getting back at her. Uh, right? Doesn't Collins like for for screwing daddy, for screwing stepdaddy? Yeah, I, I get it, but it doesn't make any sense within the context. Why would he care? Right, he's just trying to give a little Renfro action. Right, I, I didn't I didn't understand that at all. I didn't also understand her lineage much, like. So she's screwing daddy, but it's not really her daddy. She's adopted. 
but why did they adopt it if they were so poor and he was in prison and huh yeah boy I didn't even I, you know if I go look in the garage I have a Venn diagram of all the family members and what I'll do is I'll post that because I think I'll maybe like one of your listeners would be interested <laughs> I think you're overestimating how many would be interested in that I think it's Alicia Witt well she should she but, not uh, know she had no clue. Okay. She didn't research her character to them. Okay. You know what? You know who auditioned for that role? Meg Ryan. I don't know. Very close. Paris Hilton. That, would, that time, wouldn't have worked at all. She, she was dating... Uh, yeah, but it probably would have got the film a little more exposure. This was pre-internet sex scandal. Right. And, and uh, like, her boyfriend at the time, the guy in the, the first... Is, video. is it Rick Solomon? Is it the same dude? Rick no. Solomon, yeah, yeah. He was a. Uh, he's credited on the movie somewhere. Oh. I think he was. I think he supplied uh, happy medicine to people on Saturday. He had some role in it that I don't. He was, I he was Brad Renfro's friend. He was somebody's friend, and he said, "You know, can uh, can Paris audition?" Mm-hmm. And then uh, she was horrible. Right. Because he's the same guy who then married Pamela Anderson for two weeks. Yeah. I guess that's what he does. Maybe he tried to make a sex tape with her and she wouldn't do another one? Sure, well, she'd already done a sex tape. That's what I mean. That's why she she had her fill and that was enough. Yeah. No, no pun intended. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, and there's a weird moment near the end where Michelle Forbes says, we're, you know, we're going, to, we're going to Disneyland. But then you, even though they've said Disney World, it's then dubbed over with Disney World. What? That was just was that a weird screw up that you kept in or I don't even understand that scene. Um, yeah, there was some big thing, Disneyland, Disney World. Which one's in Florida? That's Disney World. That's Disney World. What does she say in the movie? She says Disney World, but then here here's um what ha- I think what happens is she's supposed to say Disney World, but she says she mouths Disneyland and you dub over world. Oh yeah, yeah, that's uh that's Yoram, the crazy Israeli, uh, thinking that that matters. And thus, fucking it up even more. Right, and then it becomes noticeable when it, when yeah. it hadn't been earlier. Uh, how did, See, you had three movies that all have a 2002 date on them, even though they obviously were not shot in the same year. Um, when were they made, in what order? Bill Scallion. Mm-hmm. Third Wheel, in shot in 98. And then again, no, shot in 99. And then shot again in 2000. Mm-hmm. Waking Up in Reno shot in 2000. And then Confessions of a Life, Lifer's Picnic, American Girl, whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. I think it was shot in 2001. And what was with the, I mean, how does the, how does the third wheel eventually get released? Like, why does that take so long to just go direct to video, basically? I don't know, man. I got to tell you, Merrimack's probably, what do they make, like 20 to release 12? And then they right. acquire a few? Yes. So it's like the duplex. Did you ever see that one? I have. That looks like it's about 45 minutes of an awesome movie and then 45 minutes of a really bad one. It's Jennifer Aniston, America's sweetheart. Ben Stiller, one of the funniest guys out there. No, no, it was Drew Barrymore, oh. not Jennifer Aniston in duplex. Oh, it was Drew Barrymore. You're right. Okay, America's Sweetheart, Drew Barrymore. Right. And Ben Stiller, one of the funniest guys out there. And I think that was made around the same time as Third Wheel. Because that has, that has a very tinkered with feel to it. 
I do remember really enjoying the first half, and the second half's totally toothless. And you didn't see Ben Stiller out on the on the junket trail promoting the duplex. What was he saying? No, you didn't see him. I don't think he was. Oh, okay, because he was upset he with the, the direction it went to. I would imagine. And but I'm saying that that was a Miramax movie. You know, I think this is in the Kate Leopold era. Right. right? That probably got a little more love, or you know. So when when they make. By the way, I take all the credit for the things you love. And I'll take most of the blame for the things you hate on any of these because, I mean, that's kind of the director's gig, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you make a choice, you, take, you roll the dice, and you right. fight for what you... You know, I wish I had some of the uh, the political skills that I've learned over the years in hindsight to maybe make a better movie. But um, when you make when you make it and they acquire it and you're really happy... And then you don't know how to really navigate the waters to get it in the, the 12 winners. Mm-hmm. You know, should have, should have made a better movie. Shouldn't have shouldn't have uh, come in under budget or on but whatever whatever I didn't do, I got I got to own it. So if there's funny moments people like, that's great. Um, I mean that's why with I am comic, it's, you know I didn't even want to go. I had a producer. He's like, "Well, let's go pitch it around." I was like, you know, I don't really want to pitch it around. I'll just make it, and uh, I can I can afford to make it. It'll be what I want it to be. I guess I want to know what the original intention was with the movie, the third wheel. Was it just a very thinly written romantic comedy with a homeless guy added somehow? With a homeless guy added? Well, I mean, in the sense that, you know. I get that he's he's there, but like it's just, it's your standard romantic comedy, except there happens to be a, a homeless guy sitting at the table the whole time. Was the way it looked, say an hour of it minus the party scenes, is that close to what what the original intention was? Yeah, I guess it's uh, it was probably influenced. I mean, to look at it the other way would be Midnight Run with a date. Okay. After very after hours. It, was, it felt like that, but I. No, well, yeah, after hours. The Griffin Dunn is it? Who's yeah, that? it's Griffin Dunn. It's, it was very much an after hours template, and and Phil played by. I'm using air quotes. I know you can't see me. Right. But but um, I think Phil's. It was written as a showcase for the writer Jay Lacopo. Right. Well, let me tell you what my note said while reading while watching the movie. Phil won't leave the movie alone. Yeah, that, but that, that, that's a negative. It's like, please leave. I know you know. Yeah, I guess the, the fact that nothing is going on kind of grows on you. But you know, you're not helping. You're a weird contrivance Phil, that doesn't make any sense. Phil was uh, in the way of both the movie, the story, and the filmmaking process. He and our friendship, of course, dissolved after that. I, I tried to, you know, I had a, a fondness for Denise Richards. And, and tried to beef up her role with you know, the laughing, the snorting, the tight-fitting clothing. And, you know, I think Luke Wilson's a generally funny guy and tried to come up with physical shtick and, you know, little runners throughout the movie. But you know, we, we talked about breaking the fourth wall and whatnot. Oh, I was going to ask about that. There's that line where someone says, there goes the first act, and it's just right about where the first act ends. Is that one yeah. of those? Yeah. Well, that's, that's placement. That's editing placement. That was not intended by the actor to, to say that at that point in the movie. Okay. 
But then, you know, there's a bread scene. There's a speech he makes about bread that is supposed to be like this inspired, you know, don't we all love each other because we're all really the same kind of speech. Mm-hmm. It just comes off a little hokey. Well, the whole thing kind of does. But you, you do share something in common with a recent film in that uh, Jonah Hex is equally cobbled together out of spare parts and makes about as much sense. Now, what, what, do, you, what do you like? Because you're not just picking on me. You just, you just don't like it. Uh, what's been, what's been wh- your favorite movie recently? Oh, uh, I guess I had to think. Daybreakers? I saw on DVD. I really like that. It's a good genre film. Well, you know what? I interviewed the director of Fugue, and I really liked her film, Barbara Stepanski. Yeah. I liked Fugue. Uh, Hurt Locker. We just watched on pay-per-view the other night for the third time. You like Hurt Locker? I, you know what I like about it? I like the individual moments. It's it's like watching The Messenger in, in that there's not really like a, a story that you take with you. It's the individual scenes that work. The characters a little bit, but like as someone said to me after we saw it, he said, "You know what? I wish they would make the messenger as a sitcom, and that every week, <laughs> every week, some you know, some someone would show up and go, you know, it would be like a you know, this is your life, except this is your son dead." Uh, you've seen, have you seen the messenger? No, I've not seen. Uh, it's that. with Woody Harrelson and Ben Foster, and they they're oh yeah yeah yeah. And they show up, and you know their job is to tell the families of dead soldiers, and and beat the news to it, basically. Um, Do they ever in the movie say, "Don't shoot the messenger"? Right. That's why it's called that, obviously. And but do they ever say that line? Uh, no, they don't. It's just implied. Like somebody's freaking out over the death of their their loved one, and they go, "Hey, whoa! Don't shoot the messenger." Right. Yeah. I think it was a little That'd too. Be yeah. Uh, and Jenna Malone's in that too. It's her only nude scene, actually, in history, as far as I know. I'm renting that. <laughs> well, what about the, the Jen- Book of Eli? Is he blind the whole time? You know, I I, I didn't write I didn't blind. write a review of that, but I actually legitimately enjoyed it. Now I'm aware that it's quite terrible, but I like the sort of genre mishmash going on of a western. Uh, post-apocalyptic movie, which is one of my favorite genres anyway. Like, I love the Italian ripoffs of The Road Warrior and Escape from New York. Um, right. And, like, some heavy-handed Bible movie that deserves to be nowhere... You know, yes, I guess that at the... What was what funniest part about the ending to me is that it's not even necessary. Like, you leave that out and it doesn't matter. Right. And when you when you put it in there, it just opens up a bunch of holes, and it makes you rethink scenes that you had you know had been okay with. I I just recently saw it on the plane, mm-hmm. and uh, I enjoyed it for the just for the sort of the camp of it all. Yeah, it's pure insanity, and then it's like, what what are the Hughes brothers doing on this? And then you then I thought they're making a paycheck. And then Denzel is in, in inserting his, his his Bible fever into it. Gary Oldman has seemed to be having a good time. And the Hughes brothers are like, well, I want to make an action movie. So they, they mix this action stuff with all of these things that do not mesh whatsoever in the middle of a Western. That ends on Alcatraz. But, it, but then at the end, first of all, at the, then at the very end, at the very end when he's reciting it, and it was Braille, you know, they reveal it as Braille. I thought he was just, Denzel was just a cat that, you know, with nothing to do after the end of the world, decided, 
Yes, that would that would work. And the, and the problem is that a lot of the scenes don't make any sense because he's like walking towards people, directly towards people with no like clearly you know it, just stuff that he's obviously looking at people that he wouldn't be if he were blind. Right. It doesn't you know. Yeah, and then you, you saw it on a plane, but I saw it on a bi- I saw it on a big screen. And it was even more obvious. If you retrofit your mind to the fact that he's blind, mm-hmm. it does not track. Right. And, and then he, and I'm supposed to think he's got this uh, sixth sense where he can dodge bullets. Right. Well, he's yeah. he's Jesus, of course. Or something. Yeah. I don't know what he is. Abraham? I'm not sure. And uh, I guess your question is, do I like movies? Yes, I do. It's just most of the things you see are not very good. You know, the majority of movies are, as you're probably aware, mostly unwatchable. So... No, I didn't... I, yeah. I think you like movies. I was just wondering... If it was, if you're particularly picking on me for the comedy of it, no, I would pick. I pick on everyone. It's just not. It's not just you. I think it's. Okay. I think it's I, fair. I feel a little bit. I, it's what? You feel a little I, better. I mean, you thought. You thought I was like. You know. How dare you make the third wheel? How dare this innocuous romantic comedy that nobody saw? It, it offends me as a person. Really? Is that was that the thought? <laughs> No, that wasn't a thought. I think my answers have proven I'm right there with you, baby. <laughs> well, I, you know, it has things in it that I liked, but yeah, it falls apart. Um, and I did wonder that the play they go to, America, was was that like was that funny at some point? Like, you did something with it, and then it just got cut out because it, it's like it's a waiting for Guffman style setup, and then there's no, there's no payoff. I'll tell you what was funny. That it was funny, like the Vietnam guy getting up and you know, out of his wheelchair and that they were bad actors and mm-hmm. that it was very much a waiver government thing that, that the backstage, like, just glimpses of Custard with his arrows come out of his back trying to just assemble this, you know, just a couple of sight gags. But, um, 80, 82 minutes? At least on the version I watched, yes. that 82 minutes, but we're including credits and we're including, um, uh, unnecessary um, bust a move scene, which I'm assuming was another inclusion at, at, at uh, Jay's insistence. It was to showcase Jay's dance moves, fancy footwork, yeah, yeah, his dance move. And the studio loved that there'd be some fun thing during the credit. <laughs> even though, my, my, even my though it undercuts was, anything that happens before it. Right. You know, the theory is if you leave them with a feel good taste in their mouth. You forget the preceding seventy-nine minutes. If you know, it's, I always try to look for connected themes because that's sort of my job. And sometimes filmmakers will be like, "Wow, I didn't notice that," or "No, that's just coincidence." Your films, and it may be just coincidence, have a few things in common. One of them is that you've got lots and lots of title titles like everywhere, like you know, next day, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, not not Billy Bob's wife, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it, you know, and used for jokes. I mean, you do it in in I Am Comic as well. Is that is that a shortcut for you, or is it something you just like to do? Do you do it in your commercials as well? Commercials, you can't do it. That's a trick. You're kidding with that. You can't do it. Yeah, I, I am kidding with that, but yes. Um, but um, is, is that is that just like a shortcut you like to use, or is it something bigger and better? Like you know, your 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 whole family was came out of the world of credits or something. I don't know. With Waking Up in Reno, that was. Um, that was a studio thing after the fact. 
I didn't do that one. Yeah, because I would assume um, that the narration is... Sorry, go ahead. I keep interrupting. Go ahead. Oh, no, I did it in a commercial, actually, for, for Glad Bags. I put the words on there, but I just was thinking. Um, no, the studio put that on there just to make it a bit clear and to get the story going. And I am comic. I did it because uh, it just, I thought it was funny. I mean, I like, if you're making a documentary about stand-up comedy and some of the people take it a little too seriously, mm-hmm. when we were interviewing them, and others clearly were doing bits they'd done before, and yet a third category of people that were just having a blast and being funny. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Nick Kroll is at the perfect tone for the movie. Right. Just taking the piss out of the whole documentary. Whereas Louis C.K. Is, was pretty, pretty, pretty serious about the whole thing and makes me laugh. Right. Uh, because he's getting so serious about it. Right. So when times like that were coming, especially in the first third before it all falls apart, you put the uh, the subtitles on there to get an extra little laugh. Right. Well, I figured, but it just seemed you know, it was a connection. I mean, I could figure out that a lot of the things were added by the studio. I mean, there's no reason for a voiceover to show up at the end of Waking Up in Reno that hasn't been there before. It just seems completely intrusive and obviously added at the last minute, I'm assuming. So, hoping. The last minute idea that I had, yeah, you're absolutely right. The last minute idea that I had that we got that got in was that Natasha Richardson's character would take over her husband's dealership. Mm-hmm. Like there was some sort of reward. But uh, at one point, she tells Billy Bob, you're getting a vasectomy. And in real life, which I scratched my head when I read that and said, you know, in real life, if your wife tells you to get a vasectomy, she's basically giving you free reign to go screw anybody. Because the whole problem was you got somebody pregnant. Right. But with a vasectomy, it's not emasculating. It's freedom. It's empowering. Right. Vasectomy is like a get-out-of-fidelity-free card. Well, here's the thing. There's so many questions unanswered in the movie, such as what exactly is Natasha Richardson's problem? I know. Well, you're a young man. You're a young man. I think people, I think the forty-something crowd get that when you're in a stale, sexless marriage. But just like, but you know, I, think, I think that was her problem. Sorry, I interrupted you. That no, no, no. It's fine. Um, it, it, it's a. Uh, I mean, it was. It was. I get that. You know, a sexless, stale, sexless marriage. I got that point, but. She wasn't interested in his attention. She was making excuses with her friend that didn't make sense. Like the the jacuzzi thing, what would what would the difference be? You know the the yeast infection joke and the whatever. I don't know. They just seem like you, I'm assuming again, totally taken out of your hands because they're just loose ends. As as Joe Bob once said, uh, describing the Goonies, there's more loose ends in this movie than a gay bar. <laughs> yeah, but but some of them were not just there to begin with. Okay. Um, some of them are, I mean, when you have a Burton Lonnie reference in a movie shot in the new millennium, right. you know you're going into it with a problem. Right. But I'm surprised you haven't, I'm sure this is in your notes to come up, but uh, at the credits of Dil Scallion mm-hmm. and, and Lonnie Earl from uh, Waking Up in Reno both go to the same steakhouse in Texas. The 72-inch one, the... 72-ounce steak. Right. You, you eat the whole steak in one setting. Right. It's a famous it, place, uh, as far as I'm aware. It's, it's a real place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I've heard it. of it, yeah. There's the, 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 the guy who wears his helmet, Eric, the something or other, the, the, the eating guy, the food competitor, whatever you'd want to call him. 
the glutton manager. I'm not even sure what the proper term is. He's the one who eats with a helmet, and you can see him eating, trying to eat the largest burger, trying to eat the steak. I've seen all that stuff, too. So, yeah, I, I recognize the uh, location. You know, I know you said oh, whatever I liked is, is you can take credit for, and whatever I didn't like you can sort of be blamed for. But I'm, also, I'm basically trying to excuse you here because the whole movie seems so tinkered with. First of all, I have Teflon skin. Mm-hmm. I'm rhino thick skin. I don't, it, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really bother me. You know, Troy Duffy said the same thing to me, but he spent thirty minutes wanting to punch me, so I don't necessarily believe that. <laughs> I, would, I would never want to punch you. I would take a shirtless hug. Oh, okay. But that's who I am. Um, I'm saying that taking the blame for this stuff for most of it, because if you made it a little bit better, then they wouldn't tinker with it as much. Right? If you if you if I had made the film a little bit better or rewritten a line that just cut through the clutter or had stood my ground and refused to shoot the scene that would throw it all away or like I came up with other references that weren't Bert and Lonnie references. Right. I forget who was back in the day. It might have been, you know, uh, Brad and Jennifer or somebody who were together at that point. Right. Had just broken up. So I can tell you, I shot alternates to a lot of the stuff, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, you know, I didn't have the clout. Well, it, it, it just seems like the script is get the, clout. the script is missing something. The, the structure that the movie has is that we learn about the fair very early on, and then we spend a lot of time on some weird travelogue that doesn't seem related to very much, and then we get to the hotel, and then everyone is in a door slamming comedy. And then the movie's over. It would have been a better movie, he said during editing to himself. Me, mm-hmm. wow, the movie really starts when they get to Reno. Like right. that would have been a better movie. Mm-hmm. Learn about the affair, take an airplane to Reno, right, or Vegas because most people would go to Vegas. Like who really goes to Reno, right? And then that's where the whole that's where the whole thing comes out. And then how do they deal with it for the rest of the movie? That would actually, you're right, that would have been better. Because part of what I was going to ask is the structure is so strange that I had wondered if it was originally conceived as a stage play because we've basically got like a four-character drama. And I know they go from set to set, but the travelogue stuff could have been added at any time because it seems so superfluous. But, I, yeah, the I think it, was, The travelogue was meant to, be, meant to be fun. That was there from the beginning. But I think it's, it's more the sitcom aspect. You know, uh, Mark Fowler... And Brent Briscoe, who's a, I think, a really good actor, by the way. Mm-hmm. Simple Plan, you've ever seen, you've seen yeah. that one? Mm-hmm. He's like the, the Pete Best of that group, sort of, uh, or more the Billy Preston in that movie. They wrote it, and I want to say they wrote on, like, Hearts of Fire or Evening Shade or some, some sitcom that Billy Bob wrote on. They wrote it for Billy Bob. He was a producer mm-hmm. uh, on the film, and... He was like a couple hours late every day. I didn't quite get... I think Billy Bob enjoys being a good performer in a bad movie. Not that Mr. Woodcock is is that, but... Uh, yeah, but that's another one that... It, endless tinkering. I mean, that's not even the same movie that they originally shot. There's some Botox going on in that movie. Well, with what? Susan Sarandon or John Heater? <laughs> Billy Bob. Right. Well, Susan Sarandon has obviously had work done, but she's had the, the greatest surgeon in the world, it's pretty clearly. Because that she still looks, you know, like a 40-year-old somehow. 
Yeah, because watching the movie, there's some really, in, in Wicked Marine, there's some really weird continuity issues. And I was like, this has to be related. You know, like, when they're having sex in the car, uh, Swayze, you know, is forced to get off her, like, immediately. And he gets up and his pants are done up and everything. And I, and right. I, I was like, uh, okay, is this one of those TV things where people have sex with their pants and underwear on? Um <laughs> But um, it, 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 the movie does um, rehash one of your favorite themes, which is making fun of rednecks. And redneck, while well, rednecks be rednecks, just like an American girl and Dill Scallion. Yeah, I love rednecks. I grew up in Ohio and Virginia, and rednecks are just good people. Well, I'm glad. Where did, where in Ohio? A small town called Mount Vernon. I used to live next to Paul Lynn, the original Center Square. Well, I was, he's, he's related to one of my questions I'm going to ask about I Am Comic, actually. No way. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Paul Lynn? Yeah, do you know why? Okay. Why? Okay, the question was, because like, oh, I'll go on I Am Comic. The question was, does Rich Shatner, was Rich Shatner aware how much he looked like Charles Nelson Riley, a.k.a. the other white meat version of Paul Lynn? Um, yes, we pointed that out to him. Okay. He also looks like Art Carney. Yes, he does. But Charles Nelson Riley is the more contemporary reference. And the more kitschy one, and I'm sure that's the one you prefer, right? You know, uh, he he wears some of the oddest clothing in the movie. Like at one point he looks like he's some sort of third world tugboat captain. And we uh, by the end of the movie and he is currently doing stand up comedy for Scheidner. Mm-hmm. He dresses a little hipper now. He'll wear the suit. Um, he sweats a lot in the movie. I don't know if you noticed that, but mm-hmm. well, I mean, I'm assuming. I mean, the, it was what was interesting watching was that uh, it's clear from early on that he has he does not have the material at all, but he has the instincts. I guess they never went away. Is that about right? Right. Yeah, I mean, his material. Uh, it, it, nothing. You know, people are going. I bet you they edited. Uh, your first performances to make it look not as good. I've seen enough open mics and small shows to know that you probably didn't. No, I only I only edited out the stuff that was that didn't work and left in the one joke because he recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Scheidner back in the day, his his main skill was the riff, mm-hmm. and that's what he that's what he does in the movie. And it's when he starts goofing on the room that he's truly, his chops came back. Mm-hmm. It was interesting, though, because we filmed a handful of comedians at the Improv, a handful at the Laugh Factory, then we went to Manhattan. And in Manhattan, we had the crew watch some of the comedians after the show, like as a treat. Let's have some nachos and some blender drinks. We'll watch a show. Rich couldn't take it. And after about four comedians getting big laughs, he, you could tell he was just itching to get back up and, and to, to get the laughs. I mean, even during the first couple of interviews, after we were done, he would both go outside and smoke a cigar or whatever. And just You could tell there was he was a little bit humbled by asking them these questions. And they were all wondering, what the fuck have you been doing for 10 years? To find out what the fuck happened to Rich Scheidner and director George Brady, and how Amazon.com can be blamed for I Am Comic, Listen to the upcoming part two of the interview, which will be available in the next two days.